0: A new Supreme Court ruling seems to throw a wrench into the False Claims Act, in particular, the Key Tom cases, where a whistleblower stands to benefit from revealing false claims. It gives the Justice Department greater authority to toss out certain cases. Federal News Network's Tom Temin got analysis from whistleblower attorney Steve Cohn of Cohn, Cohn and Calapinto. What precisely
1: did the court rule here and maybe tell us a little bit about the case? Sure. So the False Claims Tam is a unique type of law because it lets a whistleblower stand in for the federal government to protect the government from fraud. So the whistleblower can initiate a case and pursue a case against a fraudster, even if the federal government doesn't get involved. It's a historic procedure, goes all the way back to the Middle Ages. It was used extensively in the colonies. And I think the first Congress of America passed 15 of these qui type laws. So that's the issue. But the issue was if the Justice Department, if the United States wants to throw the case out, what are the rights of the whistleblower? And at the bottom line, it's government money. So the whistleblower is trying to protect the government. But what happens if the government says, we don't want that protection, we want the case dismissed? That was what was before the Supreme Court.
0: All right. And so in this case, then, it was a case where the government decided not to get involved.
1: Exactly. The government moved to have the case dismissed and the whistleblower objected. And said they just can't walk into court and have the case thrown out. The statute gives the government the authority to do that. But there's supposed to be a hearing. So the question is, can the judge overrule the Justice Department's decision? What's the purpose of the hearing? That's what was before the court. But that's not the issue today. Well,
0: what did the court decide, though, just so we know?
1: Sure. So the court decided that the government can have a case dismissed early on and that there's no dispute about that. But once the government says they don't want to participate in a case, know that they walk out without dismissing it, could they come back a year later after the whistleblower has spent thousands and thousands of dollars litigating a case? Could they walk in and say, toss the case? And what the court decided was the answer was yes, with a caveat. They applied a basic rule of civil procedure that lets a party have a case thrown out and sets up some guideposts. So at the end of the day, they didn't give the United States the complete authority to throw a case out. But if you read between the lines, the United States would be able to have dismissed almost every single case they wanted to, applying the standard that the court set forth.
0: And is that standard difficult? I mean, is this good for whistleblower cases or bad for them?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. It's our view it's almost neutral because it very rarely comes up. I mean, this is one in a hundred, one in a 1,000. So what was going on here, what the court had before them was a very narrow question applied to a very narrow set of cases. But that's not what occurred.
0: All right. We're speaking with Stephen Cohn. He's a whistleblower attorney with the firm Cohn Cone Colopinto. And this was an eight to one ruling. And it's the one justice dissent by Justice Clarence Thomas that's got you worried?
1: exactly so clarence thomas does two things in his dissent first he says you can't just throw out the whistleblower's case if you read the statute and the rules of procedure so the first half looks like it's expanding whistleblower rights but then he comes in with the curveball he says however if what i say is true and if what the 8-to-1 majority said is true, we have a constitutional problem, and the Quetam provision may have to be thrown out in its entirety. From the founding of the republic? Yes, all the Quetam laws, but also all other types of laws that empower citizens to defend rights. The most obvious is something known as a citizen suit, where citizens can file environmental suits against polluters to enforce environmental laws, even if the federal government is hostile. And what he's saying is is this concept that only the president can enforce all the laws. We're not a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. He's rejected that. And it's a government of the president by the president for the president.
0: Or at least of the executive branch. Yeah, exactly. what, What was his reasoning? What was the constitutional basis
1: of his saying so? Okay, so the Constitution says Congress can enact laws. Great, like the False Claims Act, like citizen suit. It also has another provision that says the executive will enforce the laws. The question is, is only the executive authorized to enforce the laws, or can Congress empower the people to help enforce the laws? And if so, what are the guardrails? That's really the question and the concept that only the executive can enforce the law from my point of view is not just authoritarian in nature, but is in complete and total conflict with the founding of the Republic, the actions of Congress for 250 years and the very principle of a government of the people, by the people, for the people, period.
0: All right, but that was a single dissent, and the other eight justices of all political stripes, if you want to put it that way, were of a different mind in this particular case. Are you worried uh-huh. that if a constitutional challenge was brought, there might be more people joining Justice Thomas? this and that, first case you said was very narrow but if it was a general constitutional case then you think it might flip
1: well that is where it gets even more troubling because this issue was not raised by any party in the case justice thomas just came up with it in whole cloth came up with his opinions on it without one brief being filed without one issue being raised and then two other justices who were in the eight group majority concurred with Thomas that the entire False Claims Act may be unconstitutional. But that's not
0: what they were considering. They were just simply voting for the merits of this narrow case then.
1: Exactly. So it's kind of like when the Supreme Court issues a decision You have the majority, you need five. That's the controlling precedent. But any judge can then write a concurring opinion, which is kind of their opinion. It's not controlling on the court, but it's letting everyone know what's coming next. It's a message to parties what to do, how to mold future cases. And you can do that through a dissent or a concurrence. And that's what happened here. What you will now see are constitutional challenges to uh, False Claims Act cases across the country. And that will result within a year or two of the Supreme Court hearing this case. And what's at stake is not just whether we're government of the people, but all other similar laws. And the big hit will be in the environmental area for citizen suits. So you can begin to see what might occur here. This sea change of like, on the one side, corporations that don't want people meddling in their profits, exposing their fraud, filing cases against pollution, and on the other hand, the Chamber of Commerce and all their big business allies fighting to squash the ability of people to challenge their practices. And this really puts the democratic process at a real risk.
0: I forget the Supreme Court justice that said the law is what we say it is, but it sounds like this is something that you expect to come up.
1: Yes. Yeah, so what's critical here is the QUITAM process is hundreds of years older than the founding of the Republic. It was a basic, well-established, unquestioned law enforcement tool that all the colonies were using, that was clearly understood by every founding father, every founder of the United States. There were 15, I believe, could have even been more in the first Congress of the United States. This is how they were looking to enforce the laws. There has never been, for 200 years, this never was questioned. Every court that has looked at it since has rejected it. Yet all of a sudden, without any briefing, without any warning, three justices stand up and say, we have to go look at this historic practice.
2: I guess now it's wait and see.
1: It's going to be trench warfare.
2: (laughs) Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University and um, Associate Provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me.
3: Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you.
2: It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the US. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I
3: was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty. To keep the cold wind out, I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace man." Hmm. From that point on, I
2: committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. for the kinds of reasons you just talked about that it's it's fulfilling, but can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so
3: many so-called top fifty institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me, and you know I flirted with a couple of them and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious, and my family is brutally honest with me and they keep me grounded so I flew down and began to talk with him about the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness